Well, good morning. Let's, let's take our Bibles and go to Acts chapter 15. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate that. Acts chapter 15, while you are turning there, a couple of announcements. Um, just a reminder today, there will be a baby shower for Jenny Fennell um, at 2 p.m. Um, at the uh, Fennell house in Ellisville. She's registered at Baby List. And you ladies know what that is. Men, you have no idea what that is. But uh, yeah, baby shower today. Small groups are in uh, week three this week. If you hadn't plugged into a small group, um, check out on uh, under the people and places table at the back, and uh, there'll be small groups um, there. Also, starting point coming up on October the 1st. What starting point is, it just allows you, if you're not a member here at Cross Point, to basically meet with uh, pastors on, um, on a Sunday night. And uh, we'll share a meal together and uh, just allow you to hear more about our church. Some of you may be thinking about you want to join and commit um, to us uh, with our church family in membership, us as, as, a, as a local church. And that just allows you, there's no pressure to, uh, to join, but maybe you've been praying through, thinking about um, hanging with us um, for the long haul. And I would encourage you to, uh, to come to Starting Point. It's Sunday night, October the 1st at 5 p.m. Please sign up by September 24th so that we know how many people's coming. We can provide for you. Child care will be um, provided uh, that night as well. Um, Justin wanted me to, uh, to make mention of this. Parents, this is a way that we've been wanting to serve you a little more. Back on our truth table, there are some, uh, some interesting little sermon notes for kids, and it allows um, your uh, children to start basically learning how to sit through messages and sermons. There's some Colorful things there. Who is speaking today? Uh, they can draw like, you know, baseball hats on me and Justin's head or whoever's preaching. But an opportunity for them to start learning to listen, right? To hear the Word of God. Also back there um, are some, some coloring sheets where throughout the message they can color a Bible verse and begin to learn that. So that's back on the, um, on the truth table. And we, those will be available um, every single week uh, for you. Acts chapter 15, we just sang uh, a song, How Christ is Our Hope. And uh, I just found it really funny. I, I, uh, I leaned back to Justin as we started today, and, and Daniel made that comment about, I, I know it's football season because comments will eventually arise like that. Daniel is an Alabama fan, okay? And he's not an Alabama fan that becomes like a Walmart, I'm going to go buy a shirt when they're 6-0 and fan. There's going to be a lot of Alabama shirts left at Walmart in the last, next couple weeks. You know what I'm talking about? If you're an Alabama fan, it's not a shot, okay? Because my team got killed last night, okay? So uh, third quarter, I felt like Rocky Four. I just want to say, throw the towel! Throw the towel! But uh, Casey Hicks reminded me this morning, the actual scoreboard in Tallahassee last night read Florida State 66, Southern Miss $1.5 million, okay? So, um, yeah. Thank you for that, Casey. That was encouragement. But how great is it um, that in the midst of life, whatever we're facing, our hope is on a firm foundation, not it. He can never be moved. And as we think about this morning, all of our hope is in the fact that our hope is in Christ, who in fullness of time took on flesh. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't. He went to a cross, he bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we would come to the place that our hope can never be found in ourselves, our good works, because we have none, our righteousness, because we have none, and what we present to him as our sinful life, he takes it upon himself, and because of his simple grace, he bestows on us his righteousness. And we're made right with God 
not on how we operate and our track record on a Tuesday or a Thursday. We're made right eternally with God, not on the basis of our work, but on the basis of his work once and for all. And the reason why that's so important is we have to be reminding ourselves of this gospel. And this is what the church faced in Acts chapter 15. This is our third week back in Acts after taking a break for the summer. And title of the message today is the Jerusalem Council part two. And the reason it's part two is I only got through six verses last week or like five and a half, okay? So we're going to try to get through verse 22 today. And you say, that's not going to happen. I hope it happens, okay? So we, we learned last week that there was a crisis that occurred in the church at Acts. Now, this is not the first crisis. There have been just kind of roller coasters of crisis. And I think it was important last week for us to understand that the normality of the Christian life is not in the, the fireworks and smoke and, and mountain highs. And it's not just in the valleys of deep, tough times. But the normality of the Christian life is just kind of lived out in normal Wednesday afternoons. Seasons of life where we not, may not feel emotionally charged. We may not feel swept up into spiritual heavenly ecstasy, but we know Jesus is Lord. We know he saved us by his grace, and we're just going to plug along. In the book of Acts, though, they encounter the, this crisis. And if you'll remember, it occurred at Antioch where we had moved up the coast. The gospel had moved up and in Syria, this this kind of second mother church had been planted. They sent out Paul and Barnabas for the first missionary journey. They come back at the end of 14, and they begin to spend, Luke says, no little time with the disciples. But we learned last week that this was the crisis. And the crisis was concerned really on three fronts. First and foremost, the crisis was a crisis of false teaching and teachers. Just to recap, I'll put these just little blurbs from last week up. Brian, if you can throw those up there. It was a crisis of false teaching and teachers. Let's go past the text. We'll come back to the text. Notice last week, the, the false teaching was, unless you're circumcised, you can't be included in God's salvation. Unless a physical act happens to you, you can't be saved. And these were people that the church at Jerusalem had not sent out. They had of their own accord gone to Antioch, started teaching falsely. And the crux was that this crisis concerned the gospel. What do we preach? But it also, if you remember last week, it concerned the unity of the church. What unites us in Christ? And I love this week, somebody made this comment in our small group. This crisis concerned the mission of the church because what do we believe? What unites us? Because naturally that is what we share with the world. And so this is a huge crisis. And so in response... The church at Antioch, not one guy or two guys, you remember, the church together appointed Paul and Barnabas and a few others. We'll see later on, probably Titus was in this group as well. And they go down to Jerusalem, and it says back in verse 2 that they went to the apostles and the elders about this question. So today, let's pick up in verse 6, and let's look at what happened when they met. Acts chapter 15, we'll read a few verses. Let's read down through verse, uh, actually, let's just, let's just read, read verse 6 uh, to start with. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. What matter? This question of 
what saves? This question of how are people saved? This question about does everybody have to be circumcised? Do Jews who were Christians first, do they impose on Gentiles everything, the, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the civil law of the Old Testament, everything that goes along with that? Do the Gentiles who are now believing, what is required of them to be saved? Now, I would just make this distinction for you in verse 6. Notice it says, the apostles and the elders. Now, the apostles, of course, Peter, James at this point, the brother of John, he's already been executed, remember back in chapter 12. So, but, but John's there, probably at this time, Thomas still there before he went to India, Matthew is there. And the apostles, it kind of says that they would, eventually they begin to spread all over preaching the gospel. But notice at this point that elders are included here. Now these are men who were not apostles, but they were men that helped govern the church. They helped teach the church. So what you've got is, this is pretty cool at the Church of Jerusalem, uh, pastoral team, we've got apostles and we've got elders. I mean, that, that's, that's a good group of people to examine this matter, to discuss this matter. And so let me throw up here first. What I want you to see first today is the discussion of the crisis or discussing the crisis. That's what it says here. They were gathered in verse six to consider this matter, to ponder it, not to debate it so much like in like a, you know, vehement tone. Because you remember Back in verse 1 and 2, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They, they contested with the false teachers. They, they stood face to face. This was intense. That's not what's going on here. In verse 6 is they are considering, discussing. They're talking through this. Now keep in mind, you've got people like Paul and Barnabas who have seen what God is doing among the Gentiles. And you've got guys in Jerusalem, the where, where the mothership of Christianity is, the, the mother church, but, but they're primarily Jews. And so there begins to be a rub. And, and here's the rub. I was listening to a man comment on this passage this week, and I thought this was helpful. Up until this point of, in Acts, Jerusalem has thought about, well, Cornelius got saved in chapter 10, and the Samaritans got saved in chapter 8, and, and that's cool but they're still not completely freed up over this idea of everybody everywhere being included in God's plan. And so they're thinking possibly that even if God includes Gentiles into this, they've got to conform and be like us. What Paul and Barnabas have done, they've basically been sent out by Antioch across Galatia preaching the gospel to everybody. So it's one thing if the Gentiles become an exception. Paul and Barnabas have made the Gentiles, check this out, the target of their gospel proclamation. And so that's the rub. Are the Gentiles the exception? And if so, like, they got to become Jews. What Paul and Barnabas are saying is, is that anyone, anywhere, anytime, from any background, any culture can be saved. And so they're considering this. And if you boil down the, the question that is, the questions that are asked in this discussion, they would be this. How does God save? And what I mean by that is, does God save or do we contribute in that salvation? So 
If I have to be circumcised to be saved, check this out. I am adding to what God does, and me and God together bring salvation. So that's a big question. Are we saved by faith, or are we saved by keeping the Old Testament law? That, that's what's in bounds here. And you'd almost say, is there a mixture of both? Because it seems to be like the people in Jerusalem that, that, are, that are hung up over this, they would certainly say, yeah, we're saved by faith. But guess what? We need to keep the law also. Is keeping the law required for Gentile believers? If so, how much? <laughs> is all of Leviticus, is some of Leviticus, is all the Ten Commandments, is some of the Ten? Like, like what's going on? That, that's what's being asked. You boil it down to this. What do we do to be saved? Now notice, y'all, how Satan works. If the gospel's messed up in Acts 15 for all time, guess what? It's messed up for us, too. And as we go on in the book of Acts, guess, guess what happens? The very next chapter, Paul and Barnabas, or I'm sorry, Paul and Silas are in a jail in Philippi. And guess what question is asked to them? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That question has to be answered. And that question has to be answered in your heart, and it's got to be answered in my heart, and it's got to be answered as us for a church, and it's got to be answered for anybody that says they, quote, preach the gospel. And that's why the Jerusalem Council is so important. I should just make mention also, this, is, this was not the last council that occurred. It is in the book of Acts, but down in the first really four centuries of the church, thankfully the gospel was settled here as we'll see it. But guess what? In the third century, the fourth century, some crisis arose over the person of Christ. Some guy named Arius started saying, Christ is a created being, 325. Church leaders met together at Nicaea, and guess what they said? Christ is not created. He's eternal. 381, at Constantinople, there was false teaching about the Holy Spirit, false teaching about the humanity of Christ. The Trinity is not a thing. Constantinople, they affirmed the apostles' teaching that there is one God eternally revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship Him. We exalt Him. We glorify Him. And then there was teaching about Christ's nature. He's sometimes man. He's sometimes God. 451 at Chalcedon, the church said, no, there is one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, with two distinct natures. And so notice Satan's attack oftentimes comes on what the gospel is and who Jesus is. Because if you miss those two, you do not have Christianity and you do not have the New Testament. And that's why there's so much going on. This isn't like some side dispute like, like, please, pastor, tell us which translation of the Bible we probably need to use. Like, this is core right here. That's a big deal. I get that. But if you don't know the gospel, it doesn't really matter what you do, right? So how do they discuss this? They do it in, really, this council takes place with three speeches. Peter in verse 7 through 11, Paul and Barnabas in verse 12, and then James, talk more about him in a minute, verses 13 through 18. That's how I want to look at this, how they discuss the crisis, okay? And what it would be is they're gathered together, and, and I don't know, Galatians kind of tips us off to this a little bit. It seems as if they met like more privately, these apostles and elders and Paul and Barnabas and the, 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 the brothers that were, were, were trying to get out of their legalism from the Pharisees. And then it seems as if at the end they emerge with like this statement like this is what we're going to do. 
So, so I, I think it's helpful for us in our minds to think that they met behind closed doors, whatever the conference room looked like for the church at Jerusalem, and then at the end of this debate and discussion, they, they bring before the church what their findings are. So the apostles and the elders, verse 6, were gathered together to consider this matter. Let's go to verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. That sounds like our dude, doesn't it? <laughs> Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter gives this speech. He's the first to stand up. And naturally, probably it's important that he stands up because he's got street cred, not only with the apostles, because he was the spokesman early on. He's the guy that God used at Pentecost. But if you remember, he took a lot of heat in chapter 10 when the Spirit of God led him to go to Caesarea to hang out with Cornelius. And you remember in chapter 11, they were like, you went in and sat and ate with uncircumcised guys? And he's like, yeah. And he tells the story of Acts chapter 10. And at the end, everybody says, praise God, the Gentiles have been given life too. Sometimes how quickly we forget <laughs> what we've celebrated and what God's done. So Peter stands up and has to remind them. And so notice the question is, what must we do to be saved? How does God save? What is required for salvation? And Peter in his speech, really, if you sum it up this way, this is what Peter says. We are saved by God's grace through faith. This is Peter's point. 7 through 11 is him saying, we are not saved by keeping the law. We are not saved by contributing to our salvation except through faith. And that faith comes by grace. Now, he does this on four lines. Notice, brothers, and this is how you know that it's a friendly discussion. This isn't like, you know, him just trying to like elbow him in the face and, and like front, you know I mean? Brothers, he looks around and check this out. Isn't this good? Even among those he disagreed with, even among those back in verse 5 of the Pharisee party who were trying to impose legalism, what does he still say? Brothers, check this out. When you disagree with a Christian, they're still a brother or sister. When you disagree with somebody who knows Jesus and has a testimony of his grace, they are not an enemy to be opposed and judged and rejected and cast off. They are a brother or sister or family member to be loved, reproved, yes, but called back to the Scriptures. You'll see James do this in a minute. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Brothers, you remember, he says in the early days, which is really interesting, it, like we, the church has only been around like, like 20 years, because this is going down like AD 59, AD, uh, AD 49, and, and AD 50. Christ, based off calendars and what different people believe, he's... He is uh, crucified, raised, and ascended 30 to 33. So, so we're just in like the first two decades of the church. And Peter's like, remember in the early days? It's like some of us are like, you know, that's how we, 
you know, we, we don't use that. You know, I've been out of high school 20 years, and I don't like to think of, you know, the early days. You know what I'm talking about? Because we try to deny. But the people like, in the early days, back then, probably a decade has passed or so since Cornelius believed, since Acts chapter 10. And Peter says, you remember what happened then? God made a choice. And the choice was that God chose me to preach the gospel of the Gentiles. And what did they do? They heard the gospel and they believed. Paul says this. I mean, Peter says this. We know we're saved by God's grace through faith because at the beginning when the first Gentiles were saved, all they did was hear the gospel and believe. They weren't circumcised. They didn't keep a bunch of rules and then God said, all right, you're ready now to come in. Peter said, all that happened was I went and preached the gospel. And we should, if we remind ourselves, he didn't even finish preaching the gospel. Like the Lord interrupted the middle of the sermon and saved him, right? So Peter's like, hey, like we didn't impose circumcision on them then. Why would we do it now? How were they saved then? They were saved by believing the gospel after they heard it. He also says in verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Why are we saved by grace through faith? Because these Gentiles that believed, God gave them the Holy Spirit. And he specifically says here, notice, that the Holy Spirit is the way that God bears witness to the fact that we're a Christian. That's good, isn't it? Romans 8, 9. We know we are in Christ. We belong to Christ because we have the Spirit of Christ. If we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Christ. And isn't this good that Cornelius... And his family received the Holy Spirit, not through some crazy like formula or some crazy hoops that they jumped through or going through a nine-week course about how to receive the Holy Spirit. They believed the gospel, and God said, you're mine, here's my spirit. And Peter says, same thing happened to us. They were saved just like us. Let me just slip this in. If you ever doubt your salvation, and, and sometimes it's good for us to doubt because it causes us to examine whether or not we've truly been born again. Sometimes our stock is in the fact that we show up to church occasionally, that we try to be a decent person through the week, that something we did as a child that had no effect on our life for 20 years, and we think we're saved. No, check this out. <laughs> His name is Holy Spirit. His name is not tongue spirit or laughing spirit or crazy spirit or apathetic spirit. His name is Holy Spirit. And guess what he does? When he comes in our life, he begins to transform our lives into being like Jesus. And if we're born again, there will be some type of change in our life whereby we start advancing to be more like Jesus. Some people sprint out the gate. Some people crawl. But check this out. There is always forward advance into holiness and into Christ-likeness and into obedience in those that the Holy Spirit is present. And Peter's like, how do we know we're saved by grace? Because those Gentiles, they got the Holy Spirit just like us. Verse 9, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. They heard the gospel and they believed. God gave them the Holy Spirit. But notice here, he also says, what did God do in their hearts? God cleansed them. It's a great thought there that when we believe the gospel and we're saved, our hearts are made new. Our hearts are made clean. Our hearts are cleansed. Something happens on the inside. So you, you see, you see what, he's, what, he's, what he's pitching at? 
The false teaching was wash the outside, fix the outside, you know, put makeup and perfume and seventh grade axe spray on the outside and you'll be better. I make that comment. I've been to several youth camps. That's all the seventh grade boys use, right? <laughs> fix the outside and you'll be right. And what does Peter say? No, real salvation is God cleansing the heart. And how did God cleanse the heart? By circumcision? No. What's the text say? By faith. Why are we saved by grace through faith? Because cleansing of the heart only comes through faith. And then he says in verse 10, he asks a great question. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? (laughs) You are really going to go to these Gentiles who did not grow up knowing the law, who did not grow up knowing the prophets, and you're just in a millisecond going to impose all the civil and ceremonial law upon them. We haven't been able to keep that. Peter says, I'm an apostle, born a Jew, and I haven't kept the law. And you're really going to do that to other people? Really? Really? Let me ask this question then. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to show Israel and to show us that we can never meet God's standard on our own. We need somebody to come and keep the standard in our place. That's the purpose of the law. A Jew every year would come with his family and he would present a a sacrifice, basically saying, this sacrifice is perfect. I'm not. I deserve to die. But here's this sacrifice offered in place for me. And that's the gospel. The gospel is, the law shows me that I'm an idolater, I'm a murderer, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar. I don't honor my parents. I don't honor God's name as holy. I have idols in my life, and my hope to try to switch that, I'll continue to be that. I have nothing to offer God, but praise God, one has come to be offered in my place. That's the gospel. And so what Peter says here is, You're trying then to impose on them that which you can't keep and that which was meant to point us to Christ. And he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He sums it up this way. We're not saved by our work. We're saved by what Jesus did. We're saved by Christ's work. That's Peter's speech. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to work so much to receive the Holy Spirit? We have to jump through all these hoops to have our hearts cleansed by faith. And can I just show you the difference between the gospel and every other religion in the world, every other philosophy in the world, every other cult in the world, anything else? Every major world religion, every major philosophy, every major thing else says this. Look up to God, try a little harder, do a little more, jump through a few more hoops, exert yourself, beat your flesh down in hopes that God might notice you and God might do something for you. The gospel says long before you were looking for him, he saw you. You can't reach up, so he came down. You can't do the work, so he came and did the work for you. We cannot... We cannot forget this, y'all. We will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's a second speech in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. You know what they're doing? Peter's right. Isn't that good? The guys that have been sent from Antioch, they didn't say, see, told you so. Mm, Spike the football. 
And the believers hearing this don't argue back. They sit back and say, he's right. See, our struggle is basically bringing our opinions to the table and saying there is no book called Third Opinions in the Scriptures. It is God's truth. And wherever I find God's truth, I will lay my opinion aside and submit to what God says. There's humility here. Even from the brothers that are caught up in, in we, we got to circumcise them, we got to keep the law of Moses. So what did Paul and Barnabas do, this second speech? They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why doesn't Luke like spell out the speech? Because you already know what happened in chapters 13 and 14. You know what happened in Antioch of Pisidia. You know what happened in Iconium. You know what happened in Lystra. You know what happened in Derby. Remember all those signs and wonders, those amazing signs and wonders that went through. You can go and look back there, you know, at, at what happened. Justin walked us through when, uh, when Paul looked at this false prophet and, and said he's going to be blind, and he's blind. That was in 13. and 14, they that God bore witness to the gospel of his grace, granting signs and wonders. And everywhere they preached, God confirmed the gospel. One of the reasons why you don't need to get caught up in signs and wonders in today in some ways, just listen to the message that these guys preach. And if it's not the gospel, then it's not God confirming that message with signs and wonders. You understand? Don't be blown away with the signs and wonders. Listen to the message first. Is it by faith alone, by grace alone? In Christ alone. But Paul and Barnabas said, hey, we preached this message and God confirmed it. That's how you sum up Paul and Barnabas's speech here. Peter's were saved by God's grace through faith, but Paul and Barnabas, God confirmed salvation by grace. As they went and preached, they preached this message. And as they preached this message, God did miraculous signs and wonders I want to direct your attention, it'll be on the screen, but you can take your Bibles and go to the book of Galatians. And I, I mentioned last week that Galatians helps us in Acts 15. Because Galatians is written to combat the same thing. Now, when, whenever we have, uh, when we're studying God's Word, I always try to do this, Justin always tries to do this, there will be times where different opinions about a passage have been put forth. And what I mean is here, it's not going to be so much what it means, but like when it happens, okay? And I just want to be honest with you. There's a lot of people that, um, d that, that talk through and, and, and discuss when Galatians chapter 2 happened. I'm of the persuasion that Galatians was written after Acts chapter 15, okay? But there are scholars that love Jesus and love the Bible that think it took place before, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. I'm about to teach it as if it was written after, okay? But if you disagree with that, guess what? Oh, great, Okay? But notice what Paul says. There's a lot of Acts 15 language here, and, and there's a reason for it. The reason I'm bringing you here is because you can kind of know what's going through Paul's mind in Acts chapter 15. Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Paul's there. First trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 9, when he goes up and he visits Peter and a few of the apostles. We're told of a second trip that he takes at the end of Acts 11, when they took the offering, remember the offering that they pitched together and they took it down to help people in Jerusalem, him and Barnabas went. But notice the reason for this trip. After 14 years, and if you do the, the dates, it gets us to Jerusalem council. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking 
Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, apostles and elders, though privately because those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I had not running or had not run in vain. Paul's there. Notice why he goes up to Jerusalem. He is setting before the apostles what he's been preaching in the churches of Galatia on his missionary journeys. It's Acts 15 language, okay? My, my point here is not to argue that I'm writing chronology. My point here is for you to see what's on the line. That's the point. All right, Brian, go to the next if you would. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, meaning they didn't add anything on the message. Hey, you missed this, you missed that. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, God, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Why is that important? This is what's going on in Acts 15. This is Paul and Barnabas sharing, hey guys, this is what happened in Galatia. This is what happened in Iconium. This is what happened in Antioch. This is what happened. We preached, God saved people. We preached, God worked. We did this. Now, in the book of Galatians 2, you also have Paul basically saying like strong statements that were not saved by the law. So, and, and what I mean by that is you, you start in Galatians to see his heart, what probably came out at the Council of Jerusalem. Let me just mention a few. These won't be on the screen, but just listen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. We might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then at the end in Galatians 6, 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what were Paul and Barnabas saying? Guess what we were preaching? You don't get saved by keeping the law. You get saved by faith through Jesus Christ. And guess what God did? Every place we preach that, God did signs and wonders to confirm that we're saved by faith. You and I can never add anything on to the work of Jesus. It's the foundation of everything. Your faith in Christ, the Bible teaches, is actually a gift of grace from God. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Next phrase. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What does God require of us? 
to believe. That's not a work. That's just acknowledging that we can't save ourselves and only Jesus can save us. So Paul and Barnabas, God confirmed salvation by grace. There's a third, back in Acts 15, there's a third speech. Verse 13, after they finished speaking about what they had preached and how God had confirmed it, James replied. Who's this? I thought he died in chapter 12. Different James. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the apostle, was executed by Herod Antipas in chapter 12. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a physical offspring of Mary and, and, uh, and Joseph of Nazareth. We, we know in the New Testament we find other people. I mean, this, is, this just speaks about the humanity of Christ. None of his brothers and sisters believed in him until after the resurrection. And James was one of those. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that James, after Christ was raised from the dead, Christ appeared to James. And from that point on, James believed in Jesus. At this point, he is not only a believer, but he has come to a place of leadership in the church. He's well-respected. After all, he's the half-brother of Messiah. Just a little side note. He suffered martyrdom later. And they called James, the son of Mary and Joseph, they called him camel knees because he spent so much time in prayer. His knees were calloused. One person commented sometime he never honored and worshiped Christ on earth because he didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection and ascension, <laughs> he prayed so much, not only to his older half-brother, but who was in reality his Lord and Savior, that his knees became calloused. A man of prayer. And when he stands up, this is a, a deeply Jewish man, and he speaks. And I would sum up his speech this way. God's salvation always included Gentiles. Look at what he says. After they finished speaking, James replied, how does he start? Brothers. This is a family conversation. This is a family discussion. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter's Jewish name. You see what he's doing there, right? <laughs> he, he's, he's trying to emphasize the Jewishness of Peter's speech at the same time recognize Peter's not imposing law. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. And he actually quotes it from the Greek translation, which is really interesting. He quotes it from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is really cool because they're in Jerusalem. He's not quoting the Hebrew. He's quoting the Greek. So, because there's probably some people there that may not understand that. What does he do? Quotes the Septuagint. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He says in verse 14, Peter just talked about how God visited the Gentiles. And notice the motivation of why God visited the Gentiles in verse 14. To take from them a people for his name. James is saying, God chose, and it has always been God's intention to save Gentiles from everywhere. 
This isn't some new thought of God. Hey, I got these Jews. I need to kind of even, you know, the, the, I need to be diverse. And so let me just save some. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. He's looking at these guys that want to impose Jewish law and circumcision on the Gentiles. And he says, let's go to the prophets. Don't take, take Peter's word for it or Paul's word for it or, or my word for it. And for these guys, what's their Bible? It's the Old Testament. And so what does he do? He goes back to Amos and he says, God had it in his mind to save the Gentiles. At the very end of this quotation from Amos, notice what he says. Verse 17, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. God at the very beginning set forth his salvation plan. And from the very beginning, guess what? God always intended to save Gentiles. Check this out. Let me give you hope and encouragement. God did not plan your salvation second rate, second thought. You were just an addendum to the program. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save you in grace. You weren't an afterthought to God. God didn't look down and say, well, I need to include some Gentiles and that one's too far gone. Let me overlook. No. He'd always planned to take from the nations a people, it says, for his name. But James makes a good point here. Really, two points. Notice what he says. In verse 17, I'm going to work backwards here for just a second. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Notice that the Gentiles are called to the Lord, not to Israel. Notice that the nations come to the Lord, not to Jewishness. And he uses the Old Testament to say this, and this is what I would just tell you. James's speech is, is this way. Gentiles were called to the Lord not to be Jewish. That's his point. James is quoting the Old Testament to say, God saved those Gentiles not to kind of just bring them through like a little, uh, a little assembly line. Okay, you're saved now. Now you got to be Jewish and then you can be a Christian. It's not what he says at all. He says the Gentiles may approach me because I'm the Lord. And they may come as they are. James says, why are we debating circumcision? Why are we debating the Old Testament law? Because God called those people directly to himself. But in verse 16, there's a promise. And I think this is very important also. It's a promise to Israel. It's a promise to the Jews. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. It's hope to Israel because, check out, this may be why some of the believers in Jerusalem were so fiercely contesting and putting forward this legalism. Well, you know what? There's a whole lot more Gentiles than there are us, and we're going to be overrun. What about us? We've been so devoted to God, and now these just pagans can come in and get everything that, that, that we've been so devoted to the Lord forever, and there's a rub there. And it could have even been this thought. Man, these Gentiles are going to replace us. There's nothing left for us. And you know what God says? I'm not through with Israel. I'm not through with the Jews. I still have plans. I still have promises. And these Gentiles being saved doesn't mean that my eye is still not upon the Jews. God has not switched 
And what you see God doing here is God taking Gentiles from every nation and God taking Jews from every tribe and God forming, as Ephesians 2 says, a brand new people who are not defined by what they physically look like or their physical genetics or where they come from or their culture. The one thing that unites them and identifies them is faith in Jesus Christ alone. So James says, God's salvation was always for the Gentiles, but not to push the Jews out. Somebody tells you, and I, and I will like toe a line on this. I will grunt a little bit and not throw an elbow, but flash one. The church has not replaced Israel. There's still promises in the Old Testament for physical Israel. But the call of the gospel is the same. If they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, guess what? They're not included in the true people of God. But the people of God in the New Testament are not Gentile only. And that's why we see ministries all around the world preaching the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah to Jewish people, begging them, calling them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. We should too. So, there's a decision reached, and we'll move to this fairly quickly. Justin will pick up next week here. So verse 19, therefore, James says, therefore, because of what Peter said, because of what Paul and Barnabas have witnessed to, because of the fact that the Old Testament tells us that God's plan was always to save the Gentiles and for them to approach him as Gentiles, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders in the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent Judas called Barabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So they reach a decision, and that's just really how we'll land today. This is the decision. They decided the crisis. What's the decision? And this is good. James says, I think we should do this. My judgment. And he lists a few things, but, but first and foremost, before they get into like the details, you have to understand the first decision was we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not of works. That, that's the decision. They decide here. We are saved the same way. If we're a Jew or we're a Gentile, we are saved one way, by faith alone. Why are we having faith in Christ. By grace alone, God worked in our hearts. And the object of our faith is not half law or half Christ or half ourself and half our work. The object of our faith is Jesus alone. So that, that's like the first big decision here. How are we saved? <laughs> By grace, through faith, in Christ. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. That's the decision. So I can just tell you today, 
If you think that you have to add anything to what Jesus has done, can I just encourage you very strongly right here? Come as you are. Place faith in him. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to work up and add more. You don't have to do more. You don't have to try harder. Simply rest in what he's done for you. That's what the Jerusalem Council says. But James gives some practical here, and this is what I would say the second decision is. We must not add unnecessary burdens on the Gentiles. The word he uses there in verse 19 is we shouldn't trouble them. This means to harass, to burden, to, it's, it's an idea of taking a rock and like throwing it at somebody to trip them up. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't put things on them. And to Peter's point, why are we going to throw things on them that we ourselves couldn't handle? Now he lists four things, and I'll just mention these real quick. All of these deal with the background, cultural background of the Gentiles. Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what's been strangled, and blood. Why does he list these like, are these, are these like random? Like all of these would have been caught up in like Gentile religious activities. Things polluted by idols. I mentioned last week like meat specifically. A little butcher shop behind the temple where they sacrifice animals and they sell meat cheap. Some Christians will, you know, buy these things up. Man, they invite my, my neighbor over and my Jewish brother's eating with me. And man, where'd you get this? And man, this is great. Where's this butcher shop at? And you tell him where he is and then he gets sick to his stomach because you just defiled his conscience. <laughs> so, so Gentiles don't be involved in things polluted by idols. He also says some sexual immorality. Of course, this is a command that we're supposed to behave sexually as God commands. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. That's what it says. But this would also include like ritual prostitution in these Gentile cities. It also could include like relationships that the Mosaic law forbid. Leviticus 18, don't, don't marry a close relative. This really was something that turned the Jews off. What's been strangled? Jews weren't supposed to eat blood. There needed to be a wound there so that the blood could flow out and then the animal could be eaten because the Jews would say the life is in the blood. We don't consume that. And then, of course, pagan rituals would involve actual drinking of blood. And so why does he say this? Now, here it is. This is not a matter of doctrine. Of the four things mentioned, three are, are more civil and ceremonial. Sexual immorality is, is a moral command, but it involves cultural activity as well. Check this out. This is what he's saying. We're telling you to do this because it will be impossible for the churches in the world to not have Jews and Gentiles who worship together. He says in verse 21, because in every city Moses is read, meaning everywhere you go, everywhere you preach the gospel, there's going to be Jews. And so check this out. Unless the Gentiles make some concession, not on the basis, check this out, not on the basis of a command, but in order to serve their Jewish brothers and sisters, there's going to be friction, there's going to be division, and there's going to be disunity. And so, brother, check this out. If you're free to eat at meat sacrificed to idols, but it causes your brother across the street who's a Jew to, 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 to ruin his conscience, guess what? Don't do that. So this is not like a command for doctrine. This is a command for unity and fellowship. And that's what I would leave you with today. This last decision is exhorting the Gentiles to abstain from certain actions for unity's sake, for fellowship's sake, 
and for witness sake. If you're doing these things and you're unnecessarily offending everybody around you, guess what? You're going to have no ability to share Christ with them and the church is just going to be divided all the time. So we see the wisdom here. We, we see the wisdom. And the wisdom is, although you're free to do that, not the sexual immorality. Although you're free in some places to do certain things, don't if it unnecessarily offends your brother and your sister. So notice, there's concession on both sides. Those who are Jewish, we're not going to make them be circumcised. We're not going to force them to obey the law of Moses because we're saved by grace through faith. And these Gentiles over here who think they can just revel in all of their freedom, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be conscious of others' consciences lest they unnecessarily offend them and prevent unity in the church. It's a big deal, y'all. How does it pertain to us? Brian, I'm, I'm going to leave off the last part. I'm just going to land the plane. What does this mean for us as we close? Daniel, you guys can come on up. Us talking through issues is really important in a loving way. Us walking through things together is really important. Us being honest with each other is really important. I think it also means for us that there needs to be a measure of sensitivity in our hearts and lives to those around us. We aren't saved in a vacuum. We are saved not only out of one group, but we are saved into another. And what's amazing is, is that we help each other. That's good, isn't it? We help one another. We honor one another. We're willing to do less or limit our freedom in some areas in order to serve our brother and sister more. Because we all realize that we're in this thing together, not because of us, because of Christ. What we'll see next week, Justin walks us through as they write this letter. And the apostles emerge having debated this subject and the whole church is excited about it what you have is now moving forward in the book of acts a unified church on multiple fronts rallying around one common message we are saved by grace through faith in the lord jesus alone and that's why the second half of the book of acts the gospel begins to explode everywhere because they went through the crisis they went through the crisis right and they emerged on the other side committed to honoring Jesus and loving one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that we can spend time in it. Thank you that we can give ourselves to it. Thank you that you teach us the scriptures. Thank you that you care about your word. Thank you for these faithful men and leaders in Acts that hash this out. And as James will say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you allow us to, to work with you. God, thank you today that we can be so thankful that we're saved not on our works, but by grace through
faith. Lord, it's my prayer for those today that are still trying to add to what you've done, that they would stop and rest in what Christ has done. And Lord, you would help us to be sensitive to those around us. God, to use our freedom in the right way, not the wrong way. To use our freedom in a way that builds up our brothers and sisters, not tears them down or imposes on them. Lord, we don't want to sin against our brothers and sisters and in doing so, sin against you. So Lord, help our church to rest in the gospel and to love one another and to be sensitive to one another out of love. Church, as we sit before the Lord and as we get ready to worship him, worship this lamb that was slain for us, just if you need prayer today, if you're struggling, or if, if you're not in Christ and you need him today, Justin and I will be at the back. If you need prayer, if you need to talk, Ryan's available, Paul's available. Even stay after the service to pray with you and talk with you. We'll stand. Let's sing this together. Let's worship him for who he is. Daniel, lead us.